0: Well, as you grab your Bibles, uh, you can turn them to uh, James uh, chapter five. And uh, as you're uh, getting yourself there, I got a question for you here that you can kind of think through a little bit. Uh, How how do you respond when you are mistreated, right? When, When things don't go your way and someone treats you badly, you know. You know, what do you naturally and kind of instinctively? Feel right. How do, you, how do you think? What comes to mind for you? How do you react? How do you speak when someone treats you wrongly? Right, when you are maybe even persecuted uh, or, or oppressed. Now, of course, there is a, uh, there's a wide spectrum, I think, of examples when it comes to being oppressed. Maybe it's something you know, quite minor for you, something very first world, uh, like how, you know, the Rogers or Bell rep, you know, had the audacity to be a little bit short with you on the phone this week, even though, you know, you were kept on hold waiting for 30 minutes before you were able to kind of work through some of your, you know, payment plans and that kind of stuff, right? Sometimes we think that is a huge deal and I'm so, so oppressed uh, in those moments, but, you know, maybe at the other end of the spectrum, uh, it's a little bit more uh, severe, Right, more major than that, where for you, maybe you're being ostracized at the office. You know, maybe you know you're being slandered, even, and it's because of your Christian worldview. You know, and, and maybe people are, you know, kind of nice to your face and all of that, but you know, behind your back they're whispering and the gossip is going around. And perhaps it's to the point of you even being passed over for you know promotions, even though. You know, you've legitimately been next in line for a while now, and deservedly so. I mean, there are countless examples, right, that we could give of what it means to be oppressed. You know, some more severe than others. And it's probably true that as North Americans, again, we carry this, you know, such a sense of entitlement that what we often call, you know, oppression is little more than, I didn't get my way right so i'm going to whine and i'm going to complain about that uh, but would you agree uh, that when it comes to actual real heavy oppression uh, what you and i believe and you know what we think and how we respond is important Would you agree with that god certainly thinks so and today we're going to begin the, the final chapter in our series here in the book of james's uh, letter to these churches and he addresses uh, what was a very real and troubling issue among the believers there. They were being treated shamefully. Uh, they were being exploited by the wealthy upper class, which was at the point of little, literally being a life and death issue, as we're gonna see. And so James writes these very strong words directed at the oppressors themselves. Now, there's been eh, some debate about that, I guess. You know, is is James writing to Christians within the church who are treating other Christians within the church shamefully? Or, or is he addressing immoral individuals outside the church who are oppressing those within it? I, I believe it's clear and I believe most commentators believe it's clear based on the context and based on what James himself says that he's taking aim here in these words at evil men outside of the church. It was unbelievers oppressing believers. And we'll see that as we go through it here, I think. So let's just read this passage. James chapter five, verses one to six, follow along with me. which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. God, as we read your word, and as we come before you here today, Lord, we see a lot of strong words here, Lord. A lot of strong words that kind of get our minds thinking about maybe the oppression that we have received at the hands of evil men. Perhaps it's, Lord, something that we've received even just this week. And God, as we go through that, as we go through mistreatment and as we're treated shamefully and, and harshly, Lord, it is, it is hard for our hearts to rest in you. It is difficult for us to have a hope sometimes that any of this will get sorted out. And Lord, I pray that as we hear these words here today, Lord, I pray that we would be filled with a great sense of your power, Lord. I pray that we would be filled with Uh, understanding that you are a righteous judge and you are a a good judge, Lord, and you will take care of us. And Lord, even beyond that, you will punish all who treat your people poorly. And Lord, as we think through a rather, I don't know, sensitive issue and a difficult topic, Lord, I pray that you would uh, give our hearts understanding, Lord. You would give us greater faith in you, Lord, I pray that you would prepare your church even this morning. Lord, as maybe some of us sitting here could say that, you know what, I really haven't gone through much oppression, not when I really think about what oppression is. But Lord, as we just kind of survey the landscape of our world and of our culture, Lord, we know that uh, times are getting more difficult for Christians, Times are getting more uh, difficult for churches. And so Lord, would you prepare us for what is coming? Lord, I pray that we would hold fast to Jesus Christ, Lord. I pray that we would praise you no matter the trial, no matter the difficulty that you would have us go through, Lord, as we know that you will be with us. And so, God, we leave all of this in your hands and cry out for you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, if, uh, if James writes these words to corrupt you know, unbelieving people outside the church, uh, it really begs the question, why? right? Like, wh- why does he do that? Why would James direct this, this passage, these verses towards outsiders, towards unbelievers, right? Because think about it here. Right? It's, it's unlikely that these folks would, would really care all that much, that they were oppressing and exploiting these church members for personal gain. Right? They're probably like, I, like, I don't care what, what James has to say here. Right? Also unlikely is that they would even read these verses in the first place. Right? I have a hard time believing that they were just like, oh man, can't wait to hear what, what James has to say to the Christians. Right? I kind of doubt that. Now, You know, there's some thought there that some of these folks would have made their way into the church from time to time. And, you know, that's certainly true and and at least likely and all of that. But again, let's understand that this is a letter written to the church for the church. So again, why does James rail uh, the way he does against those who may never read it or again, care what he has to say? Well, because in so doing, these Christians, right, the recipients of this letter, and of course, you and I, by extension, we are reminded that God will deal with those who oppress his people, right? The Lord is a righteous judge, right? And he will not ultimately just you know sit idly by and let wicked people get away with doing wicked things. Right? This is, you know, this passage, it's it's condemnation of the unjust. Right? It, it lets us know that judgment against evildoers is coming. Right? And it is actually a good thing that you and I are reminded of this. Here's what John Calvin, the reformer, had to say about this, this very passage that we are studying today. He says, James has a regard to the faithful, that's Christians, the church, that they, hearing of the miserable end of the rich, might not envy their fortune, and also, knowing that God would be the avenger of the wrongs they suffered, they might, with a calm and resigned mind, bear them. Okay, so James here, channeling his inner Old Testament prophet, really, you know, bringing the fire in regards to impending doom, right? He he speaks of of the destruction that is coming to the wicked. And as he does this, I mean, just put yourself in the shoes of of the church, right? These hurting, these these scared, uh, afflicted, perhaps even hopeless Christians reading this and And us too, as we go through that in in our lives, we learn and and we are reminded that none of the evil done to us will go unpunished. None of it, right? Which is actually meant to give you and I a sense of of comfort, right? A a sense of peace and and, and calm and and trust in God and and hope in him and for the future in in the justice of God. In his goodness, in his power, in in his plan, and what he will do. And so with all of that, here's the first thing here today, two points. The Lord will deal decisively with those who oppress me. So I will resist imitating their pursuit of what will only decay. Take a look at verse one with me here as we go through these six verses. He says this, come now. Now, you might remember this sounds familiar. This is exactly how last week's passage started. In chapter four, verse 13, it literally just means, now listen, right? So he says, come now, listen, you rich. Now, he's not just speaking you know, generally to anybody who happens to have money or be wealthy, right? Rather, he's specifically speaking to those who use their wealth to sinfully oppress. Right, to, to sinfully bully and, and marginalize others. I mean, just last week we saw how James wrote to wealthy Christians, right, in these in these congregations about how they should handle their money and, and their attitudes towards money, that they should have attitudes that honor Christ in all of these things. And now he he condemns wealthy unbelievers and the various injustices that they were just doling out against those in the church. Now, how can we tell this? Again, how can we tell that he's speaking uh, to unbelievers? Well, we'll see this as we go through the verses, but here's what he tells them. He tells them uh, to weep and howl. Do you see that? Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, that word howl there is, is sometimes translated "wail." If you have the, the NIV version there, uh, that's probably how you see it. Now, that was a word that was commonly used uh, by Old Testament prophets when referring to the you know, impending doom of the unrighteous that, that God promised to carry out on those who refused to repent uh, the uh, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter uh, 13 says, wail, right? Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. He says, "Destruction, as destruction from the Almighty will come. Okay? Nowhere in our verses here this morning is there even a shred of hope delivered to those who he's talking to, right? It's, it's condemnation. It's, you know, there's nothing in here about, you know, forgiveness. There's nothing in here about, you know, redemption, which is what he would include and he has even included when he has been talking to believers. Now, the miseries that you see there in verse one, that word, the destruction here is to be understood not mere, merely as you know, the earthly miseries that the unrighteous will one day maybe suffer in this life. Because let's just be honest, right? Sometimes evil people uh, they don't seem to suffer much in this life, do they? Right, At least not as far as uh, we can tell, which again, that's just one of those things that's so difficult for us to grasp and, and to wrap our minds around. And we see you know, people that we can tell you know, are, are, you know, are, are at the end of the day just, they're just so wicked and, and they just seem to be you know, benefiting from, from their evil acts and, and maybe they're getting more money and more money and more people are getting hurt by it and... It just seems like this is never gonna end and we don't ever, it seems like they never have a bad day. Right? So the miseries here are, are best seen as referring to the ultimate suffering, the ultimate retribution that will come at the final judgment. And when we're talking final judgment here, we're talking the you know the second coming of Christ. We know that that Jesus is going to return, he's going to judge the living and the dead. Right? Those who have repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ are gonna receive eternal life. And we're gonna live for him, for, with him forever in glory, in new heavens and, and in a new earth. Those though who, who have hardened their hearts and, and refused to repent and have rejected Jesus. It's gonna be weeping. It's gonna be gnashing of teeth. The Bible talks very clearly about about hell and, and pain and destruction and, and separation from God forever. Awful, horrible things that are even difficult to, uh, to talk about, right? This is the misery that, that James speaks of and he says, that, that, that's coming. Now, verse two, take a look. And listen here to the, the language of decay that, that earthly and, and temporal riches ultimately become. He says there, your riches have, have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Verse three, your gold and silver have corroded. Right? So, so the wealth and, and the, the material goods that they have you know, 100% just poured their lives into, into going after and, and accumulating, you know, no matter the, the, the depraved methods or, or the harm to other people, Right? It's, it's just fleeting. It's all gonna get eaten by moths or, or rot or corrode. But if you keep going there in that verse, it says, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, right? It literally becomes evidence of their guilt that leads to a just conviction, right? God will judge. And again, he says there, he says, and, and it will eat your flesh like fire right this is this is a picture of uh, of God's judgment and and that's a phrase that's that's used commonly elsewhere in Jewish literature he says there you have laid up treasure in the last days right in the final judgment right we're in the last days now right and the and the end is coming where where God will judge all people Right and presumably, as you as you think about you know the, the context and the, the churches that James is you know writing to, they had been you know testifying to this you know and and so the the general population as they're evangelizing and they're proclaiming Jesus, they would have you know been at least somewhat you know aware of the message of the church and the gospel. Yet these wealthy you know elite had had disregarded. Uh, God's call and, and spent their lives just accumulating treasure at the merciless expense of, of those less fortunate. Now, as, as, as the church read James's words here or, or had them read to them, it would have been a very strong and sobering reminder of what the pursuit of riches and, and treasure like this ultimately leads to right? It's decay, right? Certainly our, our, our physical treasure decays over time. I think that makes sense to us. But, but when we pursue these ends, I think on some level, we decay ourselves, right? Our hearts are so easily corrupted and, and, and how we, you know, treat others as we pursue wealth and, the, and that takes over our heart and, and, and our desires and all of that. It can all take such a dark turn and as these believers, they're experiencing firsthand. Right? And so keeping in mind that many of these Christians were very poor. Right? James' rebuke of the oppressive wealthy, wealthy class here was also a warning to them. Right? Do not imitate these people. Do not imitate their pursuit of earthly riches. It, 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 all, it all decays. Which is a word uh, that, that I think we need to hear just as much as, as they do, though maybe from a different angle. Right? In North America, the, you know, the pursuit of, of riches I mean, it's so clear, right? As, as you just look out at the culture and you, you see, you know the American dream is talked about constantly, and it's all about success and. It's all about, you know, comfort and entertainment and, and building up empires and, and it's all of that. And listen, this, this stuff is so crept into the church as well. And so many of us, I think, are trying to play that game where we, we want it all, right? I, I want the money and I, I want the comfort and I want to go after these things. And I like pretty shiny things. And yet I also, to some degree, I, I want a strong relationship with Jesus. And so we want our cake and, and to eat it too and... Listen, this thing again, it creeps into the church and, and into our hearts and I mean into the very messages that churches proclaim. Right? And I think all of us, you know, kind of think through and you know, pastors with you know, jets and stuff like that, just living this opulent lifestyle. Right? I don't have a jet, I'll just make that clear. Right? Again, the, the, these things are so celebrated in, in, in certain circles, and again, the very sermons and overall kind of vibe of the church is, is that if, if you're not being blessed with you know, financial gain and material success, it must mean that you're doing something wrong in God's eyes, and, and you lack faith. Right? And while that can take over churches and all of that, I, I would bet that you know, pretty much you know, every one of us here you know, has that desire for you know, the comfort of, of wealth, you know, kind of tugging at our hearts constantly. I wonder how, how much of us have yearned for just a little bit more money, just a, you know, a, a more flashy car or, or a more opulent vacation. I mean, just this week alone, we probably wrestled with this. It becomes so easily, so, so selfish and so sinful. And, and if we're not careful, it can even turn us, us into oppressors, right? This is not a pursuit to be imitated, but a desire to be resisted. You might be thinking, well, okay, how do I do that? Right, because we can notice that, that desire in our hearts and we, we sense that we're going down that path, but you know, how, how do I get off it? Well, let's get this up on the screen here. I will intentionally resist the pursuit of what only decays by doing these three things. Here's the first one. Guarding my heart from the love of money. All right. this is something that we need, again, we need to be intentional about this. Right. right, 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, I referred to it just last week, actually, but I think it's good to share it again. It says, for the love of money is a root of, of all kinds of evil. Right? If you sense that like Man, I I I don't just want money so that I can, you know, care for my family and 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 care for others, you know, the poor and the needy and all of that, but I want it because I want it. You sense that that's an unhealthy desire then, you need to be very intentional about this. You need you need to be you need to be prayerful. Lord, would you expose my heart? Is there any evil way within me? It requires, you know, being in the word and maybe studying, you know, about finances and about the pursuit of riches and wealth and all of these things. It requires some brutal honesty on your part. Perhaps some, some real accountability, real accountability, where you're like coming before, you know, somebody and saying, this is my heart and this is where I'm at and this is not good, this is evil and I'm really struggling and can you pray for me? And listen, can we, can you be like a, a real strength and, and, and help for me in this time? of course, involves being intentionally repentant from the heart and perhaps, depending on where you're at, perhaps counseling. Now, I don't wanna in that you know, set up counseling as for you know, only the most screwed up go to counseling. No, everyone should be going to counseling no matter you know, what the issue is. But perhaps this is one for you. How can I you know, guard my heart from the love of money will intentionally resist the pursuit of what only decays by second of all, secondly, refusing to envy the success of others or of the ungodly. Psalm 37, verse one, it says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers for they will soon fade away like the grass and wither like the green herb. don't don't, Don't envy to the success of the ungodly. Instead, prayerfully, and again, with all those other things we just mentioned, maybe through counseling and accountability and all of that stuff, learn to live for what is eternal. You want someone to imitate, find somebody who who, who can handle wealth and and has has the right heart towards materialism and and all of that stuff and, and imitate them. Finally, last of all, Use what blessings I'm given to bless others. Hebrews 13 verse 16 says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Right? Ultimately, I, I, you know, I think all of us here, we, we've all been blessed enough and, and have enough to be a blessing to others. I think it's very easy for us to kind of get ourselves in the mindset of, well, my, you know, my savings account isn't quite Big enough. And when it reaches that, you know, insert whatever your number is there. Then, then I will be more generous. Then I will watch out for the person who could use my help. Now listen, in in Canada, we are we are stupidly blessed, right? We we have so so much, and we can be such a blessing to other people. It may, may not be through you know writing a check, but it might be just through our hospitality and Using, using the gifts that God has, has given us to bless other people. Listen, Christ followers intentionally resist imitating the worldly pursuits of, of those who do not love God. And if we're not intentional about this, that word is so key, if we're not intentional about this, we inevitably just succumb to those pursuits ourselves. All right, here's the second thing. The Lord will deal decisively with those who oppress me. So I will trust him to avenge every injustice committed against me. Take a look at verse four there. It says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields. Okay, so there's talking here about, about wealthy landowners, like I've mentioned, right? It was, it was common in, in the Greco-Roman age that, that w- these wealthy you know, pagan landowners would, would routinely oppress their workers, right? This is a common thing that we find in all kinds of, of literature, right? And so this is what was happening. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, he says. So, so they were cheating their, their laborers out of the wage that they had earned, right? So they're holding back money from them. And, and this is where some of the oppression was coming in. He says, "What you have kept by, back by fraud, take a look, he says, are, are crying out against you. Okay? And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord. All right. Now, I don't know about you, but this just kind of naturally draws my mind back to what we read in, in Exodus Uh, chapter two. And you remember, this is when Israel was under slavery to the Egyptians. And you remember the burden and the difficulty and the challenge that that was for these people. Here's what it says. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Listen, when, when God's people are treated like dirt or, or worse by the unrighteous and when that continues and when that that, that grows and it, it intensifies and, and it just gets, gets more diabolical and more, more painful and, and, and it seems like, like God doesn't care or, or that he even hears our cries or he hears our groaning or, or he hears our prayers or any of that. We can all take comfort knowing that he hears it all, right? Every single cry, he, he sees it all. And, and he knows, right? He, he knows what you're going through. Right? God's heart breaks for his children. Right? It breaks for them. When we're hated and we're persecuted and we're cheated, right? and on top of that, he is gonna do something about it. Right? When you look at the, at the end of verse four again there and how it calls him, James calls him the Lord of, of, of hosts. Right? This is a reference to, to God. It's so easily you know, passed over. We just kind of glance over it when we read that, right? But this is a reference to God as the commander of an army. Right? This, this is pretty epic here, right? David, he called Yahweh the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. Right? That's what he says in 1 Samuel chapter 17. In Isaiah chapter six, the prophet calls God the Lord of hosts, referring to him as as the Lord of heavenly hosts. Meaning that that God has an army of angels at his disposal that he can just send to do his bidding uh, whenever he decides. And so when James here, when he calls God the, the Lord of hosts, it's a clear picture of impending battle. Okay, do not forget, Christian, do not forget the immense power of your God and that he is coming to avenge his people who have been mistreated by those who oppose him. Now, James, I mean, he's even done describing what those injustices being committed uh, were like. Take a look at verse six. Where he's speaking to, to Those who oppress, again, he says, you have have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Again, a picture of a final judgment, right? You have condemned, and look at this, murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The NIV there translates that last little phrase there as, as the innocent one who is not opposing you. Right? These believers, they, they weren't doing anything wrong. They, they, they weren't fighting back against these wealthy landowners. They weren't doing anything to resist. And yet, these, they, they were just coming after them. And it was ugly. Now, it's, it's possible, I suppose, that these rich landowners, you know, or landowners overcome by their you know, lust to become even more wealthy you know, we're, we're personally committing acts of murder. I, I guess that's possible, right? But it's more likely that, that James means this to say that through the exploitation of their workers, uh, you know, the harvesters, which is the word the text used there, and, and by cheating them, you know, out of their wages, these economically poor Christians. We've talked about that, right? They had to leave their homes. They were scattered about. They had to find you know, new vocations and they didn't have money and all of that. So they were already very, very poor. Well, they, they, they were becoming even more poor, so poor to the point where they were unable to afford food, which means that some of them were literally what? Starving to death. And so James is saying here that God holds these wealthy landowners, their employers, personally responsible for the deaths of these people. Now as you and I, as we read that and you know, as we think about that or, or, or as we consider the injustices that have been you know, committed to those who, who we know or 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 even to us and, and maybe it's gotten ugly and it's been difficult. I think it's only natural that that we're filled with all kinds of emotions about that. Right? Probably a mixture of 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 anger, right? And and, and righteous anger. I I think there's there's probably some fear mixed with that as well, as we don't know what, what's gonna happen. Is this gonna get even worse? There's a sense of disgust and and, and disdain towards the the people that are treating us poorly. There's, I think, also a desire for for vengeance, right? We, we We want payback. We want to get even with all of this. We want to avenge the wrongs. And I think we desire to see this evil punished. As Christians, though, I think we probably also feel somewhat, at least, conflicted about these things because we know that these fierce emotions, you know, as natural and as strong as they are, they're, they're not always coming from the right place, right? And I think on some level, especially if we've been, you know, Christians for a while, we know, right, that we should, we should probably leave these things in the hands of, of the Lord. And, you know, again, if we're really honest, we know that, you know, we deserve punishment too. It's not, it's not so long ago, you know, we can all point back to a time where we didn't know Jesus Christ, right? And, and our sin was, you know, a stench in his nostrils and, you know, we needed forgiveness. And so as we kind of think about all these things, it's complex, right? There's all these layers that we're sort of, you know, trying to wade through and think through. And, you know, we're reminded again of God's grace towards us and, you know, how we have received Jesus and we think about the cross and we think about, you know, his resurrection and what Christ has done. Right, so sometimes as we're kind of sorting through it all, at least I do, I kind of ask myself the question, what do I do here? Like, how do I handle myself properly? Right, like how do we actually trust the Lord? to avenge every injustice. How do we do that? Well, I'm gonna give us five things here and I would not by any means say that this is exhaustive, uh, but trusting him to avenge uh, means no less than these five things. Here's the first one. It means that I will not avenge myself. I will not avenge myself. Romans 12, verse nine says this, it says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Right, so if you're feeling that, that anger and, and it's, it's just white hot rage and it's, and it's boiling and you're having a hard time, you know, keeping a lid on that and it's, it's coming out of you and maybe it's coming out in your attitude and maybe it's coming out in your, in your words. Maybe it's coming out in the way you conduct yourself online and all of that. Listen, that, that's something to be surrendered. That's something you need to give over to the Lord. I'm telling you right now, you, you, can't, you can't make that go away on your own, right? You're not gonna be able to. Surrender that desire for revenge surrender that desire for the other person to look bad surrender you know where that is sin in your heart that desire for retribution for that you know getting even and and payback and winning the battle and making that person look foolish and you conquering them and all of that that's all that's all in God's hands he tells us very clearly never avenge yourself Vengeance, is, it's in the hands of the Lord, right? He will do a much better job of it than you ever will. On top of that, trusting him to avenge means I will leave the timing to him. Right? Luke 18, verse seven and eight says, and will not God give justice to his elect, that's a church, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now, this is a a challenge to how we think about time, isn't it? Because we often think, well, there's nothing fast about this, you know, justice of the Lord, right? It's been days now, it's been weeks, it's been decades. And I seem to see no answer from the Lord. And I'm questioning his goodness, I'm questioning his his justice in this. But again, it was just the other week that we looked at how our life is a mist, right? And when we think about the time frame of our life and the brevity of life and the fragility of life and how, how God exists, he has no beginning, he has no end. And he sees the whole, the whole timeline of, 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 of human history all out in front of him. When you think about that and you kind of zoom out, it is all gonna happen pretty quickly. He will give justice to us speedily. Listen, the justice that we want to see people receive, we may never see it. You gonna be okay with that? It may not happen in this life. It might, but it might not. It might be in the next Trusting him to avenge means I will suffer willingly for his sake. This is a hard one for us as well. But here's what 1 Peter 4.19 says. It says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I want to tell you this right now. God never promises you comfort in this life. Some of you want me to tell you the opposite. You know, if you just behave a certain way, God will give you all the desires of your heart. God will give you everything you want. God will remove the discomfort. I can't tell you that because the Bible doesn't tell us that. What God promises is actually the opposite. He promises suffering. He promises that there will be pain, but he also promises that he will be with us in it. And a willingness to suffer is such a key component to our growth in Christ. Trusting him to avenge means, fourthly, I will not expect a better hand in life. Some of us are having such a hard time with the oppression that we're facing, or will have a hard time with the oppression that we will face someday is because our expectations are so warped, right? We expect that, you know, I'm I'm a Christian, so therefore life should be smooth sailing. I would argue that you become a Christian and life gets harder. Like anybody else kind of feeling that, right? Like me, I'm the only one apparently. I wish I had your life, right? Life is difficult. Because now, now you're fighting against sin. Right? You didn't care about that stuff before. You did whatever you wanted. Now you're fighting against Satan. That doesn't sound easy. Right? You're fighting against the world and, and, and its values. You're, 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 you're realizing how broken you are. Like life is hard. Right? Not to mention you're getting unfairly, you know, however you want to put it, like again, oppressed. Do you expect a better hand than the one you've been dealt? Here's what Philippians 1 says, verse 20. When it comes to our expectations, here it is. As it is my eager expectation. Here's Paul's expectation. My expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. If you're struggling with misplaced expectations, study that verse. Our expectation, according to Paul, should be that we honor Christ no matter what hand we're dealt, no matter what oppression comes, no matter how brutal it can get. Don't expect to be rescued from every struggle and every oppressive act. Make it your expectation to honor Christ no matter what. Trusting him to avenge means lastly here, and then we're done. I will take comfort that wrongs will be righted. Right, this is what we've been talking about all morning here, but here's what Psalm chapter nine says, verse seven and eight. It says, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. Forever. Not when I'm oppressed though, right? He's like come off the throne. No, he's on the throne then too. In your darkest day, it says he has established his throne for justice, right? And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Our God is a good and, and righteous God. And, and you and I can take heart that he will make right every single wrong that has been done to us that has been done to others, that will be done to us, and that will be done to others. Listen, church, these are hard things to talk about, right? These are challenging words, but allow this passage here to to begin to rekindle your your trust in and, and, and your love for the Lord God once again. Right? We need that today. Right? We're going to need that again tomorrow. So listen, I'm going to pray. And then as we sing here, let's, let's find our strength and renewed hope in God's promise to come through for us again.